Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special summer episode of Ingenious You. I am Melissa Morris Olson, your host, and over the last several months, I've been privileged to have conversations with some of higher education's most insightful thought leaders. In nearly every conversation, the topic has turned to innovation and change. In this special episode, we're pleased to share highlights of these conversations, where our guests address everything from why our definition of innovation is short-sighted and incomplete to what leaders can do to build and sustain an innovative campus culture. Michael, you've been quoted as saying that you knew Paul Quinn College would need to pursue a different kind of pathway than other colleges and universities if it were going to be successful. And this is something that you've referred to uh, as a movement. Can you say a little bit more about this and how has this worked out for Paul Quinn? I think it's played out really well. Um, Witness the fact you and I are talking, right? I mean, you're not talking to me because you know, we're sending graduates to Rhodes Scholars programs yet, right? Um, We're speaking because we've been successful creating a movement. Um, And our movement is to really push the boundaries of what's possible, to challenge people, to turn their institutions outward and address the needs of the communities they serve. Because that isn't what people in higher education like to do. People in higher education aren't typically gunslingers. Right? They're not the folks who you think about as being entrepreneurial or risk averse. Uh, the very essence of being in higher education communicates uh, a level of discomfort with risk that would make accountants blush. Right? I mean, these are <clears throat> these are people who like stability, like order, like their traditions and think that, you know, the way things have been is the way they should be. And that doesn't work, quite frankly. I mean, the world has changed. And, you know, it's gotta be something different than to be one of the top 40 schools that keep telling everyone they're a top 20 school, right? I mean, it isn't just about educating who you perceive to be the best and the brightest. It's about rolling up your sleeves and going to war for people who have no warriors of their own. It's about looking them in the face and saying, you shouldn't be stuck in poverty your whole life. Saying, no, your family's cycle of being uh, poorly educated and under-resourced and being neglected, all that is over, it stops now. Because we're going to fight for you until you can fight for yourself. And we accept that you may never come to our school and you may never have a child that comes to our school. But that doesn't mean that we have the ability not to do the right thing. And that's what we've done. And that's what we continue to do. And we solve the problems that people care about that are most important to their lives. What, your community's in a food desert? We'll show you how to get out of the food desert. Um, Oh, you are the site of a toxic waste dump. You know what? We will bring that to America's attention. Um, I mean, we just, 
we look at it differently. We're not going to apologize for caring about the plights of other people. And we don't understand other colleges and universities who have so many more resources than we do. How they back down, how they don't engage. I'll never understand that. I, I just, I don't. And really, to be honest with you, I don't want to understand it. You, I mean, I always tell people we were unencumbered by history of success. Right? Like, I mean, we just, you know, we mm -hmm. had to figure it out. <laughs> and um, that, that I think was really important. Um, I mean, I, mm. I think there's a blessing in being down. Um, because you get to throw everything at the problem. And, you know, you, you, people often want to say we can't do this and we can't do that or we've always done it this way or we've always done it that way. Well, you know, that, that's okay. But, <laughs> you know, it, it, it doesn't really, um, doesn't make a lot of sense for a lot of people. I think there's a special moment in time when you get the opportunity to really just allow yourself to be the most creative. And that doesn't often happen. Um, you know, it, it's, we're oftentimes so afraid of what are we gonna lose? What will people think? Um, and, and really, when you invest in that type of mindset, you've already lost. Nathan, in your new book, your theme of agility is an especially important one. You go on to provide several examples of institutions that have found the capacity to be remarkably agile, even in the midst of difficult times. As a researcher, as an academic, how do you make sense of this? Yeah, when I think about agility, I'm, I'm just thinking about the capacity to re-envision ourselves. And I think higher ed has an unfair reputation of being sclerotic, that we don't change with the times. Um, it's certainly true. I don't have quarterly performance reviews with my boss, um, as some of my private sector uh, friends do. But on the other hand, I think in the last year, we clearly have made uh, we, we provided the evidence, maybe most importantly to ourselves, that we are capable of massive change in a very short amount of time. So many institutions that identified themselves as being residential campuses, that the residential learning environment was the thing that we do, within two weeks, we're entirely distance and online. Um, and while not every institution went through that transformation, I think most institutions substantially altered things that touch on even their identity. And I think that's important to remember that we are capable of adapting pretty radically. And if we are capable of that sort of radical adaptation, then we can ask questions about, okay, so the, the environment, both the number and composition of students in the pool is changing. And that's gonna provide some stress. I don't wanna sugarcoat it. There, there are going to be changes that have to be made that will be painful. But instead of viewing this as, well, let's see what's going to be done to us. How can we attack this problem with the same creativity and passion and energy that we bring to our scholarly endeavors, that we bring to our classrooms. I mean, we, we address problems of you know, intellectual problems, classroom teaching problems all the time. Here comes another interesting, maybe painful problem for us to address. If we can all get on the same page and agree 
that the status quo is not going to serve us well. I'm really optimistic then that administrators, staff, and faculty can join together to say, okay, what do we need to do differently so that we can serve students more effectively, recruit students more effectively, uh, retain students more effectively. The consequence of that, of course, is good for our students, but it's also, as it happens, good for our financial bottom line. I don't want to sugarcoat it again. I mean, I, I describe yeah. a conversation I had with Barbara Brittenham, who uh, is now yeah. retired as president of uh, the New England Accreditation Body. And, and I shared with her this vision that I picked off up from a blog post uh, by Ed Bennett about you know, an, an anti-fragile system. Can we respond to stress and become stronger versions of ourselves? And obviously, Neshi has been located at ground zero for all of these mm -hmm. challenges. They are already in the future that many of us look mm -hmm. to with a little bit of trepidation. And so not surprisingly, her response was, well, sure. I mean, stress can make you stronger, but if it gets to be too much like a car accident, it will break you. Um, and, I, and I thought that was a, a worthwhile counterpoint, right? I mean, I don't want to be a, a Pollyanna that just says, oh, there's no problem here. Um, there may be institutions that won't be able to find their way through. Let's work together to minimize that. Uh, there may be campuses that don't find themselves capable of being agile enough to adapt, but let's try to minimize that. And I guess more than anything, I was thinking about that stress and thinking about you know, my physics friends who joke that it's not speed that kills, it's the deceleration, right? The change yeah. in speed. Mm -hmm. Stress is, is a combination of how much pressure over how much time. And we do get to control that a bit. If we start adapting right now, for instance, to improve retention rates, we don't have to recruit as many students going forward. We can, we can absorb the declining pool size by getting more registrations out of more successful students. But that only works if we start now. Let's talk today about how do we meet students' needs in new and more effective ways so that we can increase retention starting now and spread this stress out over a longer period. If we wait and we get to that point where um, you know, the financial situation is truly dire, well, then, then we have so little time and we don't maybe have the resources to implement change necessary. And then the stress does become the car accident. And then we're back to you know, Barbara's counter example of stress that just breaks. And, yeah. So it's, you know, I don't want to be Pollyanna, but I, I do want to encourage us to talk sooner rather than later and more agilely rather than um, more constrained about opening things up. How can we spread this stress out over multiple aspects of the institution over a longer time period so that we can come out the other end successful? As a president or a senior leader, there is always so much clutter that gets in the way of creativity and innovation. Sandy, are there some things that you do to sustain your own creative mindset? And how do you ensure a steady flow of good ideas, either for you or for those with whom you are working? One of the, um, the aspects of my career, and as you highlighted, you know, I've been the CEO of an educational technology company, I've been a lawyer in a commercial environment. I have led higher education institutions. What I would say is, in, as we think about innovation, it's really important to look outside the academy as well as inside. So where can we learn from what other industries are experiencing? Where can we learn about where we see careers for the future emerging? Uh, what, what can we learn about how students learn, how they want to learn? Um, and it's bringing all those things together that creates, I believe, uh, the Petri dish 
which helps uh, mm -hmm. innovation flourish. And so I believe that the more we can uh, look at what we do and marry it with what we see the future is becoming, um, the, more, the more robust and innovative society we will have and translating that to Bay Path um, is what we do best. So under your leadership, Melissa, of course we developed some really innovative uh, new graduate degrees. And we began to think about how to educate adult learners differently. And we began to think about hybrid models. And we've got this amazing uh, doctorate in higher education where we bring together all these different creative people from all these different fields. And that's where the magic happens in terms of innovation. Very important to continue to scan the environment. So as we see something really innovative happening, perhaps in healthcare, you know, we think about, okay, is there a practice there? Is there a, a system there that would be incredibly valuable uh, for our students? So as you know, we're an extremely student-centric organization. We focus on the needs of students, uh, whether it's in our online program, whether it's in our on-ground program, our hybrid program, our focus is uniformly what is best for students. And so as we think about that and we think about uh, the careers that our students will be um, looking to and hopefully leading, because a really important foundational piece for women's colleges is that empowerment piece, that women's leadership. Uh, women are very collaborative, which is really an important uh, issue here. And so how do we build those communities where we can continue to push forward innovation? And I think we, I think we hear it from a lot of different places. The other place I look, Melissa, is uh, to technology. Not for technology's mm. sake, but how does it enable the learning? How does it enable the research? How does it enable uh, creativity? And so mm. that's where I think uh, looking at the academy is absolutely critical, but you must marry the academy and our thinking here with external thinking in terms of technology, in terms of careers, in terms of partnerships. I think partnerships are going to become even more valuable than they have been already. So it's something that we're taking a very close look at, uh, partnering with businesses, partnering with institutions. You know, sometimes one plus one equals three. And so looking for those opportunities <laughs> for our students, faculty, and staff um, are going to be a priority for us. Scott, it is a well-acknowledged fact that innovation in an academic organization can be really challenging. From your experience, why is this? What gets in the way? And what can you as a leader do about it? Um, yeah, so um, I think there's at least three that I can think of on the top of my head. And the one we've already mentioned briefly, and that is distraction. Um, my life can be absolutely completely consumed weekends, evenings, all day in meetings and emails and talking to donors and community and it's just completely consumed. Um, and everyone else really to some degree is in the same boat. So 
it's as if there's a conspiracy afoot to keep us from thinking about any change um, because we are just so consumed with all of this. That's, that's a big one. A second one is momentum. Um, we've been doing this forever. Um, I would say this lovingly that students who sit on the front row in our classes and love listening to someone lecture, grow up to be lecturers, <laughs> teaching to the front row, who grow up to be lecturers who teach to the front row. And this, this momentum of kind of a subset of the population of the world keeps perpetuating itself. <clears throat> and any suggestion that we change is a threat to those that grew up in this circular world. It is a wonderful world. And, and this momentum has kept us strong for centuries. It, it also threatens our future um, as the world is changing so much more rapidly. You know, it, for, for centuries, the source of information was the libraries at our universities, but that's not the source anymore. With, with uh, the internet, uh, people can find information in lots of places. So that's another one. And then I think the third issue that comes to my mind quickly is the incentives are all against change. Um, the private sector, the for-profit institutions have profit as a motive. We don't have profit as a motive. In fact, we don't have anything as a motive. Um, we have demotives. Um, if, if I put in an extra amount of effort to try to do some special innovation, and, and I could give you stories about this, <laughs> um, all I get is grief and resistance. Um, I'm not talking about any particular group, my faculty or staff or the community or anybody else. I'm just talking in general that, um, that if I pursue some innovative thing, there is so much resistance. Uh, anybody whose cheese is being moved by this immediately starts fighting against it. Uh, anybody in another institution that feels like maybe we're getting ahead fights against it and we're in a statewide system. Um, there, there's just so much resistance and there's no reward except for the satisfaction of doing something amazing. Um, that's, that's a major problem. That's a major problem for us. Um, we have to create culture that makes innovation rewarded. And, and in, a, in my world of the public university setting, that is so hard. Um, it, it, it's just really hard. My, my advice is, is that we have got to set aside some people who can, and time. I, I tell my team, um, you know, if, if we assume a 40 hour work week, which isn't the case, <laughs> but if we assume a 40 hour work week, uh, we have to set aside a day every week that we can really think uh, and strategize. Um, and it doesn't work, but we have to find hours every week to do this. We've got to find a way to support those who are interested in innovation and remove barriers for them and protect them. 
Um, we need to find ways to encourage them along with um, incentives. They're just, we have to create people and spaces where this is promoted. Um, and and it's, it can't simply be who wants to volunteer and I'll put you all in a committee. That, that doesn't work because if we just say, I want, to, I want an innovative group to volunteer and we'll create this uh, little task force, some of the people that volunteer for that are people that don't want change to happen. They're, they're there to protect themselves. Um, and some people like to think that they're innovative, but they're really not. They just don't see it. So we, we have to find those people who are really, really focused on it and then help them be successful. So much of the work that you do at SOVA is focused on building a culture that will support sustainable change. Can you tell us a little bit more about your approach and also, or including, why it is that you don't like the term change management? We came to the shared uh, conviction or shared conclusion that the place that change uh, falls apart in practice, so evidence-based, strong, positive change falls apart in practice, is really around the human side of things. And so uh, we focus specifically on uh, improving processes, improving uh, the quality of collaboration, the uh, quality of uh, climate and culture within institutions. And so we really wanted to focus on the human side of change and uh, supporting uh, better human problem solving. Uh, the reason that I'm not a huge fan of the term change management is I think it inappropriately signals a kind of simplicity that the work, typically change management is a field of practice in the private uh, sector in which a discrete training program or a discrete something is being implemented in a, a highly structured command and control kind of environment. And so you're managing the implementation of a discrete change in an environment uh, that is carefully structured and in which there is a clear hierarchy um, of uh, decision-making and authority. The problem with that is, and that phrase always rubs us wrong, that what it actually takes to do this work to in fact make sustainable change based in evidence for dramatically improved outcomes and closed equity gaps for students requires more than tacit acceptance, tacit buy-in. It requires active creative commitment on the part of faculty, staff, and others at you know, multiple levels of the institution. And so what it takes, the kinds of leadership skills, and we think of them as post-hero, uh, leadership skills, where it's not the person at the top saying, come go with me. It's the person at the top saying, come go with me. Here's where we're going. But it's your talent, your expertise, your commitment to our students, to your disciplines, to our enterprise that is going to make this work work. And so that is, I think, the mm -hmm. hardest work of leading change is distributing and developing leadership at multiple levels to empower true co-ownership for the work. In, indeed, and you've worked on a college campus, so you, you, you know from firsthand experience just how hard it is to get anything to stick, given, Absolutely. The range given the range of constituencies that you have, each with its own agenda and the competing interests, right? Absolutely, and this is why that kind of clear leadership vision and set of expectations for uh, how the institution will function, most higher education institutions in this country historically, that work of silo spanning 
in order to create mm -hmm. common ground on which people with just, you know, diverse or disparate interests um, or orientations to the institution can stand together and say, yes, we share these priorities and this is how I fit into this. And I can see how sure. you fit into this and I can see what we need to be doing together. That's the work that, you know, that's part of what is profoundly countercultural about student success work. But it's also, you know, we see where the institutions that are doing this work well, they find it profoundly satisfying work as well. Paul, you are clearly one of the most innovative leaders in higher education these days. Given that, I'm curious how you think about innovation, if you have any insights for others who may want to create a more innovative culture on their campus. You know, we think of innovation sometimes as a kind of stroke of lightning insight, when in fact, there is a playbook around innovation and there is a taxonomy of innovation, right? So there are sustaining innovations as Clay often wrote about in disruptive innovations. And you need to first understand which of the two you're doing because they require a very different playbook. They happen in a different way. They happen in a different place. You drive them differently. So, so I think we have internalized that playbook and we could go into a lot of details, but they're, they're outlined in his theory and his writings and he's been written about a lot since then. But let's just give you a couple of quick examples. A sustaining innovation is one typically that allows you to keep doing what you've always done, kind of play by the same rules of the game, but to do it better. So um, it's, you know, it's improvement, it's quality improvement, it's process improvement. Um, if you take a look at the way, for example, that higher ed over the last 30 years has just, you know, continued to be better through the use of technology, that's really a powerful story of success. My little college in Marlboro, Vermont, the first place I was president, um, you know, when we could finally get an internet connection and then later on get connected to the Hubble Space Telescope, you know, here's this little rural remote college that had access to the Hubble Space Telescope. Like our, our faculty who taught astronomy could rethink and make so much better what they were doing. That was an improvement. That's a sustaining innovation. You get better. But we were still playing by the same rules of the game. We we're still administering higher ed very much. Our college experience very much as it always had been, just better. There's a sort of second bucket of innovation that is also about sustaining innovation. Um, it's about less about improving the quality of what you do, but playing by the same rules of the game. It's about finding efficiency in what you do. So that's the use of technology to do things better and cheaper. And an example of this would be when I first came to SNHU in 2003, students would still line up starting at five in the morning to register for classes because they needed a particular prereq to graduate on time. They had to make sure that they were there before their peers to get that class. And they would line up and they'd go to the gym and there'd be different tables for different departments and you'd run around with your registration form. I mean, just crazy, right? Today, it's all automated. They're doing it online. It's pre-done, like it's just fast and easy. And so that's innovation that is, again, sustaining, but we didn't change the rules of the game. We just got better at, at, at operationalizing them. But the innovation that people I think are so interested in right now is what Clay would call a disruptive innovation. It's not about improving your quality and playing by the same rules. It's not about improving your efficiency and playing by the same rules. It's about reinventing the rules. It's changing the game. So if you think about, um, I'll do a couple of easy examples first. If you think about the taxi industry, 
a sustaining innovation might have been, I don't know, an easier way to schedule your cab or your taxi, or maybe an upgrade in the vehicle. New York City does this periodically, quality improvement. But Uber came along and blew up the game, changed the rules, whether you like them or not. They changed the rules of the game. Um, Airbnb did something similar in the world of hospitality. They changed the name of the game. Um, I think when we did our competency-based degree program, no courses, no credit hours, no instructional faculty, we changed the game. It's still a work in progress, obviously. So my point is start with knowing what kind of innovation you're doing and then take a look at the rules, the playbook for how to do that. So I'll give you just, again, I'll stop. I'll just two quick examples. Sustaining innovations, you always do them inside the organization, right? If you want to improve the quality of learning and teaching and learning, bring your faculty in, get them very much engaged. They should drive that. They should own it. Um, if you're going to improve um, the way that students get to register, bring in your registrar, bring in your IT people. They'll fix that, right? But if you're going to change the game, that's sustaining. If you're going to change the game, if you're going to disrupt it, you almost always have to do it outside the mainstream organization. Because as Clay's research teaches us, when you're doing something so different, the whole drive of the organization will be either to incorporate it in its own image, so not really disruptive, or spit it out, get rid of it. It's like the body dealing with foreign tissue. So my job when we were doing disruptive innovation is get a bunch of people, get them away from the rest of the organization, protect them and buffer them, give them the um, invitation to break or play by new rules. And Clay would say, when you're doing sustaining innovation, you're playing to your current customers. When you're doing disruptive innovation, you got to find an underserved customer base, which is what we did. So I'm getting too wonky and into the details. If you take nothing away from the way I'm listing these examples, take away that there's a playbook. This isn't about creative bolt of lightning stuff. This is understand, become a student of how innovation works. Susan, you do a lot of on-the-ground consulting work with colleges and universities around the country, many of which have undergone or are, are undergoing uh, change of one kind or another. As we are coming out of the pandemic, I'm wondering what you're seeing and whether uh, you have an opinion about the extent to which these institutions are going to be able to hold on to the changes that they're making, and also whether there are some tools or strategies that you can recommend uh, for any college that is looking to uh, map out a future that may look a little different than the pathway it's on right now. I do know that many institutions, including some with whom I work, are actively asking the question, what is it we learned over the last year? And which of these things that we learned or we tried are things that we actually think might be better, um, be worth keeping around either as an option or as a normal way of doing things. And I find that enormously encouraging. I think that there is, and here's my optimistic self coming out. I think there is a way in which the experiences of the last year, horrific and tragic as they have been, may also have the salutary effect of 
giving people some experience with lived change at institutions that most institutions hadn't really tackled over the last 30 years. Most people on our campuses had lived and worked in roughly the same kinds of circumstances from year to year. And I think this, I know this has opened the eyes of some people to options they would have considered um, unacceptable, less than, um, or simply not the way we do things, if you will. Um, so it will be really interesting to see what institutions choose to hang on to. So let's go back to uh, a point I was making earlier about uh, creativity and uh, data. <laughs> um, I think both of those are really important tools. So um, certainly for assessing risk the way we did in the book, um, one needs to have access to some good and reliable data, albeit fairly straightforward. Um, I think every institution, every leader needs to be well acquainted with their own data and information and really to have um, confidence in what those data are telling them. I'm amazed at the number of schools that don't have that, uh, leaders that don't pay attention to that. Some of that may be their, that is they don't come from a data background, um, but there are certainly lots of talented people who can help provide that insight and I think it's crucial. At the same time though, um, higher ed is also, it's a people business. Um, our institutions are fueled by both the people we serve and the people that provide that service. And so there's another set of tools that really are about leveraging those smart and creative and talented and committed people to do what the institution needs. Now I say that those are great tools, but um, there can be uh, challenges to leveraging those tools in, in an ideal way. Um, I mean, certainly I would say, um, as I said, there, there are few institutions that have real lived experience with significant change. So the fact that, um, you know, as one colleague years ago said to me when we were uh, two years into a slogging effort, <laughs> relatively small curricular change at my own institution said to me, Susan, this is all happening with baffling speed. Uh, <laughs> um, and I think that really speaks to that lack of experience with real change. I mean, you know, humans are resistant to change in general and higher ed is, I think, especially so. But um, I think smart leaders can figure out how to leverage their culture, leverage their people, leverage their data uh, in order to help accomplish that change. I will point to one other thing, by the way, which we haven't talked about, which is governance. Oh. I'm, first of all, fascinated by governance structures. Um, and while there are certain aspects of governance that are pretty consistent across institutions of higher ed, there are also very particular differences. Uh, and any leader would be wise especially relative new leaders at an institution, wise to study their governance processes, their structures, their cultures, their habits, um, because ultimately those are the kinds of factors that can facilitate in an ideal world, the change institutions need, but they can also really get in the way um, 
especially if, inst if institutional leaders are not aware of, of what those structures and potential hindrances might be. Brandon, you have offered a really bold vision for what innovation might look like on a college campus. As a leader, how do you actually pull this off? How do you bake innovation into the culture? And what barriers have you seen get in the way? Yeah, I'm glad you asked the question. You know, we we, we know leadership is important, but uh, you know, I, you know, when it comes to the next phase for U.S. higher education, it's going to be one of the most critical differentiators between the institutions that succeed and those that flounder, right? So, you know, someone always asks me, well, what kind of universities are you trying to work with? You know, big ones, public ones, private ones, prestigious ones, right? Like the answer is none of the above. I'm looking to work with universities that have dynamic, visionary leadership teams. That obviously starts usually with the president, right? Is he or she a, you know, a very, very dynamic leader thinking about, you know, how to take the institution into the future, willing to adapt, right, willing to grow, wanting to grow the institution in every way, right, enrollment, mission, impact, that kind of thing. And then the other facets, of course, are the degree to which they have alignment with their board, right, above them and their senior cabinet team alongside them. And so that's actually the biggest uh, piece of analysis that I do as we're thinking about the universities we partner with is that. And then if you can get to that place where you say, yep, we got a, a dynamic uh, uh, leadership team, uh, they've got alignment with the board, uh, at least as much as you can possibly have, you know, that then creates the opportunity for success. And so you think about, you know, universities that have just skyrocketed in their, you know, success on any level. You think about the Southern New Hampshire's, the you know, the Arizona states of the world, the Purdue's, you know, there's, there's, there's many that I can mention, but those are ones that are usually in the news quite frequently. You know, those are institutions that have had dynamic leadership. Uh, they're now building a culture of innovation within those institutions. So they, they, their innovation will survive uh, changes in leadership because they've, they've made it an intentional part of the culture there. And I'll just say one thing, Melissa, about this. The institutions that I've that I've come upon that I've been most impressed with, they have uh, they've made innovation a very intentional and purposeful thing. So I'll give you an example. Wake Forest University, one of our very big partners at Kaplan, uh, they have a, a vice president of innovation on the president's cabinet. His job is to look for the new opportunities on the horizon. They also have an innovation committee of their board of trustees, which is really unique. Both of those are unique. And I've had a lot of college presidents during this disruption say, well, you know, how do we how do we keep an eye towards the future while we're stuck in all the things we're having to deal with most immediately? And I think the answer to that is that, you know, you yourself, a president, right, or even a provost in a, in a senior leadership position may not have all the bandwidth to be thinking on the horizon because of what you're having to deal with right now, right here and now. Right. But if you carve out a position or somebody's role to be focused on that, right, where it's clear that that somebody at the institution is, you know, is either entirely or largely involved in thinking about that, or you do something structurally, like suggest an innovation committee, your board, those are things that I think are highly effective steps that leaders can take to institutionalize this kind of work. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I'll start with the thing that, that it's going to sound really simple that that probably gets in the way the most is just 
thinking inside of our current box of what higher ed has always been and being beholden to a lot of sacred cows that, you know, if you really, you know, step back, you're like, I'll give you an example. You know, universities have largely been in the business of degrees, right? You know, associate degree, bachelor degree, master's degree, PhD. We're in the business of degrees. The universities that are growing most rapidly right now, and if you look specifically within divisions or departments that are growing rapidly, some of the fastest growing um, uh, businesses within higher ed that are also heavily connected to the mission of higher ed are in non-degree education, right? Industry recognized credentials, boot camps, shorter term training programs that are designed in partnership with employers. And, you know, I have to say, there's just a lot of universities that just kind of go, well, that's not what we do. Mm -hmm. That said, right, that's where, you know, if you say, hey, you know, do we want to serve uh, if we're a public institution? Do we want to do we want to you know, serve the, the, the folks in our state who, who need to you know, get upskilled and reskilled? If you say yes to that, then a lot of those answers are going to be non degree based educational answers. And so that's just one of those things. It's like a mindset like, oh, well, we don't do that. No, no, no. That's going to be a major part of higher ed going forward. And if higher ed doesn't seize that opportunity, you're going to see all kinds of other partners that are going to go do it, you know, including, you know, major employers. They're just going to build their own educational training programs and um, and essentially, you know, outsource uh, higher ed in a way that, you know, won't be with higher ed partners. But I, I'm on the I'm on the more optimistic side of this and saying that, you know, higher ed institutions that move in that direction. Right. They have an opportunity to really make a significant contribution to the mission of of getting people to their goals in life right and uh and also quite frankly uh diversifying its revenue source and and building a much more sustainable business model as a result brian in your latest book you offer a range of highly imaginative ways to think about the future of higher education what would it take in your experience for a college campus to actually incubate some of these ideas. Do you believe that the average college has the capacity or the courage to do this? How we how we change? I, I, I believe that colleges and universities have great capacity for institutional transformation. And we saw that last March when all 99.9% .9 of American higher education went online in a matter of weeks, if not days. Uh, and yeah, we could we could talk about that being remote instruction, emergency instruction rather than online learning. We could talk about the many downsides, pitfalls, mistakes, and so on. But my point here is that we did something literally extraordinary and also literally unprecedented. Um, and we did that in a hurry with no extra resources. And um, I think we haven't really commended ourselves or applauded that nearly enough. And some of the staff who made that happen didn't get nearly enough um, applause. I'm thinking instructional designers, educational technologists, academic computing specialists. And that was a lot of work in a hurry. Um, so we have that capacity. We have that potential. The other thing is, I mean, academia is blessed by having so many smart people and committed to really thoughtful nonprofit work. I mean, that's that's a tremendous, tremendous thing. Um, and so we have the we have the brain power to tap. Um, now, external forces are pressing on us. I mean, I, I mentioned some you know some of these trends before, but you were asking about uh, external actors, and I do think. 
uh, there is pressure from governments, and we've seen this for the past, oh gosh, 30 years. We've seen state governments uh, lean on colleges and universities not to increase tuition too much. We've gotten different signals from the federal government, depending in part on who's in office and uh, who's paying attention. Um, and companies and nonprofits want to uh, improve us, sometimes for uh, purely uh, self-interested reasons and sometimes for uh, humanitarian reasons because of all the problems we have. And we can talk about student debt, which is now circa $1.6, $1.7 trillion, uh, which is insane. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's already having an impact on demographics and that it's pressing down on people's desire to have children. It's having an impact on the economy because people with large amounts of debt are less likely to uh, do capital purchases like buying cars or buying homes. I mean, and it's a humanitarian nightmare. Um, and there are all kinds of other problems that that tempt external forces to uh, intervene. But within higher education, I think we have the capacity to do a great deal. Now, I mean, the way this works, the problem is there are some things that are tricky. I mean, one is that, and this kind of thinking is inherently interdisciplinary. Yeah, you know, you've got to think about, um, in academic terms, you have to think about this in terms of economics, in terms of sociology, in terms of political science. And as much as academia loves talking about how we like interdisciplinarity, we remain fiercely disciplinary in our reward structure and our promotion tenure and the tenure and review structure. So we have to break across those silos and that takes work and that can take bottom-up work from faculty and staff crossing those boundaries and may take top-down pressure from, uh, you know, presidents and deans who try to make this kind of thing available and accessible and clear the way. Uh, it also takes uh, imagination to imagine a different way of doing things. And that's kind of hard because we, a lot of academics get into academia because we love our one narrow field. We love cell biology. We love the library. We love 18th century literature. And we want to stay there. And then we kind of outsource the rest of college university operation to other professionals on campus who can handle recruitment of students, alumni relations, HR, and all that good stuff. Uh, so it, it's hard for us to crack out of that. Um, I think a great, I mean, I hope my book can play a role in helping give uh, ways of thinking ahead that way. And then the only other thing I would, I would advise is, is that we have to collaborate in ways that can be surprising. Uh, American higher education is fiercely competitive. Uh, we, uh, colleges and universities fight with each other for, uh, for funding for students all the time. It's very difficult for us to collaborate. Um, and, uh, I, I heard one, uh, one president told me why he never supports collaboration. He told me whenever he goes to his trustees, they have never asked him about collaboration. Instead, they always ask him, quote, how are we crushing the competition? Unquote. Um, but we have to, we have to reach out and work with our work with peer institutions and non-peer institutions. There's all kinds of fantastic possibilities can be realized when the community college, the research one university and the liberal arts college sit down together at a table. I, I did some work a few years ago for a, a group that was liberal arts colleges and military academies. What, a, I mean, talk about colliding worlds and yet how fruitful that is. That's productive friction in all kinds of great ways. So yeah, we can do this. We can reinvent higher education starting right now. It just takes a little bit of thought. There, there have also been a number of ideas, as you know, suggested to improve community college outcomes even further. For example, you're probably familiar with the piece uh, written by Terry O'Banion, 
-hmm. with 13 ideas that are transforming the community college world. And some of his suggested innovations included things like co-enrollment in a four-year institution, meta-majors, structured or guided pathways, stackable credentials, reimagining remediation, something you're, you just have talked about, and so on. Are, of all of those, are there any that you think are particularly promising, or are there other things that you would add to his list in terms of um, important innovations for the future? And similar to the, you know, to the response I just gave you around developmental education and our work there, it's, it's not any one of these things, but it's all of these things and how they play together to create successful experiences for students at community colleges. But one of the innovations and transformations that have occurred over the last few years that to me is significantly important and you refer to it as stackable credentials, which is I think the, the language that Terry uses in his book. Um, and those to me are critically important, but I prefer the, the terminology that's used by the Lumina Foundation and is part of the work that I collaborated on uh, with the Lumina Foundation around quality credentials and creating quality credential pathways for students. I think everyone at this point has realized that the job that you have right out of college is not the same job you're gonna have 10 years later. And I think most of us can point to that. I mean, I trained as a chemist and I do absolutely nothing related to chemistry today. And so the question is how do we create meaningful learning experiences that allow individuals to learn and grow, to acquire the, skill, the skills that they need for the career that they're that they're going to um, enter now, but also leave the door open for continued learning, for advanced learning, and for additional degrees. And this ensures that we create equitable pathways because we're not saying that there are less important degrees than others, and that certain individuals should obtain certain degrees. But when we create these stackable pathways, it creates these touch points and endpoints for students that allows them to take that next leap in their career, but still keeps them on this pathway for continued and advanced learning. And a lot of times we think of these stackable credentials and these credential pathways as being focused only on the college credit side and your traditional associate's degrees and baccalaureate degrees, but there's a whole wealth of additional credentials out there now that if higher ed is going to really take the next leap into the future, we need to start looking at how micro-credentials and badges and industry certifications play into the conversation around your traditional college credit credentials and how they provide additional learning for students. And I'll give you a great example that we're employing right now here as a result of the pandemic. So knowing that a number of individuals were gonna be unemployed and that now would be an opportunity for them to upskill, we created a program called Upskill that provided free non-credit training to individuals in our community in things like digital media and marketing, a substitute teacher training, um, a number of different credentials in the IT area, cybersecurity and cloud computing that were non-credit, but lead to 
later on potentially industry certifications and in all cases we can crosswalk those into college credit programs so now fast forwarding to the summer term and into the fall we're now launching a kickstart program which are college credit certificates that can be completed in two semesters will allow students to have a credential but there is not a single college credit certificate here at Miami-Dade College that is standalone. They are all part of an associate degree so that students know that they have the security of having that credential and the value it brings to the job they want today, but it is part of a broader pathway that allows them continued growth in their chosen career. You uh, were talking earlier about uh, the higher ed philosopher, Ronald Barnett, and you have a quote, uh, and again, I think this is in the intro of the book, um, that uh, points out this notion that the talk about higher, or the, the talk about innovation is oftentimes very narrowly focused in higher ed, typically around the idea of a technologically delivered university. Um, and I just want to read the quote because I, I really, um, I really uh, liked it. Um, the problem is not that we are lacking in innovation, but rather that we suffer from a poverty of imagination of what this innovation might be. So from your perspective, which is a really unique perspective, both as a historian and, and as a futurist, can you say a little bit more about how we should be thinking about innovation? And I, uh, you use the word enterprise innovation. And drilling down, if you were advising a college or university board or boards, many of whom, as you know, are pushing their presidents and provosts to be more innovative, how would you advise them in this moment to be thinking about this? We'll start, I suppose, first with uh, with what what we mean by innovation or the way in which we talk about innovation today. And um, I've been I've been speaking to audiences for uh, probably close to a decade now about sort of innovation in higher education. And one of the things that I've noticed is that we can be uh, a little imprecise with that term. I think that uh, we describe any change of whatever scale or magnitude as an innovation. Uh, and so what I the, the pushback I've given to audiences is if everything is an innovation, then nothing is an innovation. And we need to be sort of clear what we mean by that. So there's, there, there, there is a lot of change in higher education, but it tends to be change sort of around the edges. Um, there's a, uh, the, the management uh, theorist, uh, uh, Steve, uh, Steve Teig has uh, described this as incrementalism. And he's not just simply talking about higher education. He talks about all sorts of enterprises, businesses and otherwise. Um, incrementalism. So we, uh, or he also calls these faster horse strategies. So we do some things a little different. We, you know, we introduce Zoom in our classes and that's a change certainly, but innovation to me uh, has to rise to another level, uh, has to have another sort of scale of, of, of significance uh, to it. So there's obviously a lot of, of change that's occurring, but that tends to be change around the margins. And that's not to discount that. That's not to say it's not important. It's, it's, it's only to sort of uh, wonder, uh, do we actually classify that as innovation and the innovation that, that, that we really need? Uh, and so to that end, when we talk today about innovation, we tend to talk about a particular kind of change. And it, and it tends to be around technology, that innovation equates to distance education, let's say, or delivery online. And this has certainly been the case, I think, 
Well, it, it, it started, I suppose, with MOOC mania back around 2012. Uh, but I think COVID-19 has, has sort of um, um, reaffirmed uh, that uh, that discussion that we're having, that, that, that if innovation is going to come in higher education, it's uh, it's strictly around technology. And, and uh, I have to say, before I get to the second part of your question, when I wrote uh, Alternative Universities, I was trying to very consciously stay away from, from technological innovation. Part of my thinking was to, to get the reader to think more broadly and expansively about what innovation can mean beyond the technological. And again, that's not to deny that, that there can be technological innovation, but that innovation does not equate solely to technology. Uh, well, as to the second part of your question about if I were uh, talking to college and university boards, for instance, um, and and you're right, there are uh, there are many of these uh, uh, boards that are telling their telling their senior leaders to to be more innovative, um, and I and I hope this doesn't come across as glib, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I, I I pay attention to uh, job listings, for instance, in the uh, in in the Chronicle and Inside Higher Ed, and I I see the descriptions. Uh, for for senior leaders that are that are put together by you know by boards and by search firms and they all have uh, the word visionary or entrepreneurial somewhere in there. We seek a visionary leader, uh, and having had some experiences uh, going through some of these uh, sort of searches, uh, I think that not for every institution, but for many of these institutions, they're really not seeking visionary leaders. Uh, they're really not seeking innovative leaders, even though they say that. Um, to be a visionary leader is to really see a very different sort of future, to see a very different sort of institution. Uh, when I think in most cases, what, what boards are interested in is, is someone who will be a fundraiser and someone who will keep the institution afloat. And I think that, that that's particularly the, the, the case right now, again, because of COVID-19. Uh, I think that that attitude uh, is going to change. In fact, um, in fact, must change. Um, again, and uh, COVID is is part of that, uh, but it is uh, it, it is only a small part of it. Um, I, uh, I I read a quote um, a couple of years ago. It was in the Chronicle from uh, Philip Rogers, uh, who's at the American Council on Education. Um, and uh, he, they were talking about uh, the success of presidents. Um, and he said, for many presidents, success will depend on their ability to reinvent themselves and their institutions every five years to keep up with the pace of change. Mm. And I read that and I thought to myself, is that even <laughs> possible <laughs> to reinvent their institutions every five years? I'm not certain. I, I don't think I disagree with what he's saying. But I'm, I'm just thinking about the kind of the kind of institutional challenge that that represents, and so I, I guess I would I, I would advise colleges and university boards to to sort of take take that idea of visionary very seriously, and uh, and to have the, the the courage the audacity uh, to choose leaders and to empower leaders who will be visionary and entrepreneurial and engage in the kind of enterprise level innovation uh, that I'm talking about. Let me end uh, with a couple of questions. I want to ask you to pull out your crystal ball mm -hmm. and uh, 
first question is uh, your take on the future of remote learning. And you've talked a little bit about that, talking about your experience in Australia, but maybe to step back mm -hmm. and, you know, what, what do you see? What is the future um, in terms of remote, online, this whole world in which you are immersed? I, I think you're starting to see I think you're starting to see it. I mean, I unfortunately, I saw a university campus up for auction the other day online. Mm -hmm. And that brick and mortar, you know, very traditional model is, I don't think it's going to go away completely, but it has to be reinvented. It has to be reinvented. There are better ways of using that model. Um, and I think that remote learning is a tremendous opportunity for some to, to actually, if we can get over some of the inequities around access, it has the potential to really bring the cost into a, a, a much more affordable place where it needs to go. Um, or we're going to have large portions of our, our, country not getting the education that they need to be able to provide the workforce that we need. It's very simple. Um, you, I don't know too many people who can afford to pay $70,000 a year for, for an education and it's not worth it. It's not worth it. I'm a graduate of, of some very expensive universities myself and I'm telling you, I'm advising my own children. You're crazy if you go into debt like that. Look for other ways to get your bachelor's degree. Do it online. Then go do a great master's program. Do anything, but do not go $250,000 into debt for a bachelor's, a bachelor's degree. It's, it's lunacy. Mm -hmm. um, and if we don't start getting really creative uh, around that, um, you know, we're failing the entire future of this country. Mm. So I think it needs to change. And I think the market is going to demand change. People are going to be shopping for those alternatives that pop up and they're gonna be successful. To me, the greatest achievements are emerging where the learning design is the strongest. And you're gonna see that over and over again. And I think that that student experience and the, the continuity of that, um, you know, I, I really believe that's what's going to be the selling point. And that's what people are going to consume. That's what they're going to buy. Learners are consumers. And if you look at what they're buying and where they're spending their money and the shifts that it follow, just follow that trend and you'll see. But it's not going to be um, necessarily after a name brand because what's happening is the student experience online is very much following a new round of brands that are notorious for great online learning. And SNHU got to be the behemoth that it is because their learning design is impeccable. Greg, so when you think about how the U.S. higher ed system and our various institutions need to be reimagined, what is your vision? Are there some models from other industries that you, you look to? So I, I do continue to, and I made a bit of reference to the music industry earlier, and I, I use this metaphor um, on a regular basis, which is um, when music 
uh, when the music industry really began to see a transformation from, uh, I'm a huge fan of vinyl records. Um, and, you know, vinyl records became cassettes, cassettes became compact discs. Um, but in all of those, you had to sort of, for the most part, buy the package. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was the whole package that you had to buy. So except for a short period of time, um, it was, um, I guess this would have been in the uh, early 90s, where you could buy CD singles. Most of the time, if you wanted to get your favorite song or favorite couple of songs, you had to spend the $15.99 and buy the whole compact disc. Um, didn't really matter that you didn't like the other eight songs that could be on the compact disc. You still had to buy the, buy the whole thing or nothing um, for the most part. And um, but over time, you may remember that Napster came along. Yes. Mm -hmm. And there was this huge uproar in the music industry over this thing that allowed people to download individual songs that they liked um, in a way that the music industry did not control. Um, and the first versions of Napster, you know, were not great versions of, I mean, the music didn't sound necessarily as good. This goes back to Clayton Christensen's idea. When you disrupt an industry, the first iterations of it aren't necessarily where the industry is going to end up, but it is the way the industry begins to change. Right. Um, and Napster, of course, eventually got shut down, but you found in the process that that genie was not going to go back in the bottle. You knew that somebody was going to figure out what the next version of that was in a legal way. And sure enough, within months, of course, you begin to have things like iTunes um, and others who began to create this model um, that allowed people to now create and package individual songs for different purposes based upon what their needs are. So now um, with iTunes, of course, you create playlists for I'm going to the gym, I'm going to have a party, um, I just want to do um, have this when I'm driving on the road. Um, but it allowed you to take individual pieces and repackage it in different ways. Um, and over time, of course, now iTunes is um, seen as old school, as you know, things like Pandora and Spotify are out there um, that give you different versions of that. Once again, allowing people to create their experiences based upon their needs. That's really where I see higher education moving. And you begin to see that in a lot of ways. And I, I want to go back to uh, the music industry for a second. I think people listen to more music now than they ever have in their lives. I suspect that if we were able to do surveys on it, that people are listening to more music now than the 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s. So it wasn't that people stopped listening to music. Right. It was that the ways that they were listening to it and how they were able to access it become different. And as a result, the industry continues to grow, but it grows in different ways. I, people take more pictures now than they ever did when Kodak was a big player in the camera industry. Um, because of the ability to do it in a different way based upon what their needs are and the power that that gives them. I think that higher education is beginning to see more and more of that. I don't need to go back to school for four years to get some new skill. I don't have to get a full degree, but I do need new skills. We're talking right now in the midst of a recession. Um, as people are looking at how things will change as we go back into the workforce, um, one of the things they're talking about is how do I get new skills? But I, wait a minute, that doesn't mean I want to go back to school for a four-year degree. It means that I need to be able to get something and keep moving forward with those upskills in the same type of way. I do believe that will continue to evolve and will be a big player in higher education. Now, having said that, I also, because that sounds alarmist to some people, <laughs> I also don't think that the other roles that higher education plays are going to cease. 
because higher education has many different jobs that it's trying to do. Again, referring to Christensen. Um, it is trying to, for some people, create that coming of age experience. Um, you still have students who want to have that coming of age experience. You still have places where you're going to need um, research to be done and um, new knowledge to be produced. All of those things will still be there. Um, I'm not saying they're going away, but I am saying that a huge portion of the population may access the acquisition of new, what we call case as knowledge, skills, abilities, and dispositions in different ways um, as they move forward. Uh, and that industry, that, that part of higher education, I think will become a larger and larger portion of what will move forward. Given your current role, you have such a wonderful perch now from which to observe what's happening across and within the higher education sector. So can you tell us something about the shifts that you're seeing from where you sit um, and what you see as the biggest challenge and greatest opportunity facing those of us in the higher ed sector in the next 10 to 15 years? Mm -hmm. So colleges and universities demonstrate a remarkable resilience in the pivot to online and remote learning uh, after March 2020, when we saw the need to move off college and university campuses. At the same time, that move unveiled the expansiveness of the digital divide, food and economic securities and experienced by so many students at all types of institutions across the country. In the future, we really need to focus on not just access to excellence in higher education, but ensuring that all students are given the opportunity to thrive by being given the support necessary for student success. Uh, my colleague at, at AACNU, Sia Versheldon, talks about bandwidth recovery and the ways in which addressing issues of racism, sexism, homophobia, food and shelter insecurity reduce our capacity for learning. We can't think about how we're going to do on the biology test to, on, on Tuesday if we're worried about whether we're going to be beaten to death because we're sleeping in our car or where our next meal is coming from, how to care for the children. And so recognizing the ways in which faculty can intervene in restoring cognitive bandwidth through creating a sense of welcome and belonging in the classroom and beyond is truly more important than ever. And institutions have to work together. Uh, college, uh, community colleges have to work with four-year institutions. Uh, all institutions need to partner with K through 12 business and industry to ensure that there is a seamless transition in, from college to career, integrating work and life, uh, and, and truly uh, guaranteeing that we are fulfilling our nation's promise of the American dream through higher education. Thanks so much for listening to this special summer episode of Ingenious You. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and rate it wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share with your friends and colleagues so that they too can join our community. We are now preparing for season three. And if you have suggestions for thought leaders you would like to hear from or topics you would like addressed on Ingenious, please let us know. 
In the meantime, check out our monthly Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Ed webinar series for more innovative thinking and conversations on all things higher ed. That's all for now. Stay healthy and be well.